Welcome to the Grove Community Church Sermon Podcast. We're a faith community seeking to change lives, change our community, and change the world. And now to this week's message. We hope you enjoy it. This might come as a shock to you. I spent a lot of time in school in the front row. Anybody else here a front row kid? Really? Yes. Okay, all right. So I was going to say, if you were, so you kind, of, you kind of popped the bubble there. So if you were a front row kid, you were on the front row for one of two reasons. One, you were a nerd and you were like, I'm going to be on the front row. Right, so you got that. Or the reason why I was on the front row, because the teacher made me be there, because she could keep an eye on me. And she knew that that spit wall on the, on the blackboard didn't come from me, but from someone else, because she was constantly watching me, right? Now, I, I got to say that I did spend a lot of time in trouble, a lot of time on the front row. I just couldn't help myself. It was just natural to crack the joke, to make my, my classmates laugh. It was, just, it was just second nature for me to try to be the class clown. And I got it honest, right? If you guys know, you know. You know. If any of y'all have, have met my mom, you know that it's from her that I get this. It, it, my father taught me well, and I didn't even have to really think about it. It was, it was second nature. Uh, the, the, the witty remarks that I thought were witty, but that the teacher didn't think were so witty, the things that made my classmates laugh that got me in trouble, that, those were all things that just came natural to me. It was, it was what I knew. It's what I experienced on a daily basis in my home. Our dinner table was as good as stand-up comedy at the house. And so it was only natural for me that when I got into school that I kind of lived that out and got in trouble. So see, mom and dad, it wasn't my fault. All of these years, all of those detentions, all of those, you know, uh, spankings and other things that I got, it's not my fault. (laughs) Uh, and the sad truth is is I might have been the best one oh gosh poor mom there's a part of our nervous system called the autonomic system for those of you that are, are nurses in the room, I know we've got a couple. What does the autonomic, and we've got a doctor. <laughs> he just walked back in. What does the autonomic system do? God, y'all are refusing to answer that. Well, that's a, it's the autonomic system actually is what controls your breathing. It's, it's those automated systems in your body that just, you don't have to think about. I mean, isn't it nice that you don't have to think about breathing or you don't think about 
swallowing. You don't have to think about digestion. You don't have to think about those things. They just happen naturally. You don't have to think, okay, blood, get to my toes. It just happens. It's built into us. It's who we are. Well, today I want to talk about what that looks like spiritually. For me growing up, I was a class clown naturally. It's what I knew. It just came second nature. It was part of who I am. Our system, our body was created in such a way that breath and digestion and all of these functions just happen naturally. Well, God also created in the spiritual realm an autonomic response. And I want to look at that today as we look at this last piece of scripture found in Matthew. Over the last few months, as we've gone through Lent and then through Easter season, and now we're finishing up, we've looked specifically at the passion narrative of Matthew, his report of it, what happened, what the responses were, and what we can learn from those responses in our own personal journey. And so today we're going to do that again with this last section. It's, it's a famous verse, or at least part of this has a famous verse in it, that, um, that you might have heard before. We've come to call it the Great Commission. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 28, and we're going to be looking at verses 16 through 20. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. And you can follow on the screen, or if you have a smart device that you want to follow on, you can go ahead and pull that out and get to Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Now, if you remember, the women had shown up at the, at the tomb. There was this quake and an angel appears, the stone rolls away, and he sits on it. And what's he tell them to do? Not rhetorical. What's he tell them to do? Go tell, go tell the disciples, and what, what do they, to do what? To meet him in Galilee. Very good. Thank you. So he says, go tell the disciples, meet me in Galilee. And so that's what the women do. Verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Now I'm going to stop here because there's an important part of this verse that we miss often. And it's the word mountain. And the reason why mountain is important is because it's a theme that occurs all throughout particularly the book of Matthew. And there's a couple of these that I want to pull out just to inform our understanding of this particular part or use of it in Scripture. Where did Jesus teach the disciples his great discourse in Matthew 5 through 7? What's that called? The Sermon on the Mount. And that occurs on a mountainside in Galilee. So we know that one thing that occurs in this ministry, in the, in the recording of the ministry in Matthew, is this great discourse that happens on the side of a mountain in Galilee. What else do you remember, or do you remember anything else that happens on a mountain in Galilee in Matthew? This gets a little harder, I understand. That's the easiest one. Very good. The temptation. The temptation occurs on a mountain in the Galilee, in that section. And so what happens with the temptation? What does, what does Satan do on that temptation? Takes Jesus to the pinnacle of a mountain, and what's he say? 
All of this can be yours. Just bow down and worship me. Right? Do you remember that? It's one of the temptations. Okay? Anything else that you can think of that happens? Well, Jesus often goes away and spends time on, on a mountain in prayer. And one of his big miracles comes after he spent time on the mountain and comes down the mountain and to the sea there at Galilee. Over and over and over again, we don't have time to look through all of them because there's numerous occurrences, but over and over throughout the book of Matthew, big things happen on the mountain. And this taps into really a Jewish ideology. This is the history of the Jewish people, right? Big things happen on mountains. And so, yet again, Jesus says, at the end of my ministry, my last teaching, the last thing I'm going to give you Meet me on the mountain. I think that's important because it highlights. This is like a big exclamation point. Don't miss this. It's occurring on a mountain. That's why that's important. So they go to the mountain, and when they saw him, they worshipped. They worshipped him, but some doubted. Uh, now, this has always troubled me, this verse about they doubted. And it's weird because the word here for doubt in the original language actually comes from the word to or separated. Did you know that? The word for doubted in the Greek language here has the base or one of the base words for it means to, the number two. It means to be divided. And so when it says doubt here, there has been a lot of ink spilled over this translation. Doubt is really kind of a strong word for what it means. They were hesitant, but that's almost too soft of a word. So somewhere between doubt and hesitant. And in the middle of that, it's not that they doubt mentally the truth of who Jesus is. It's not that they doubt up here in their head. Is it that they're confused and they're divided? They don't know what to do. How are we supposed to respond to this? Now, there's a lot of reasons why that might be. One is that we know just from other accounts that he's a little different, right? So he was dead, and now he's resurrected, and he has this new resurrection life and body. So there might be some like, okay, what is this going on? There's a little bit of a hesitancy there like, Okay, we think you're Jesus, we know you're Jesus, but what's this about kind of thing? It's this new experience. They're hesitant. They're divided about it. But another aspect of it is, what happens in the last scene that Jesus is with the disciples? What's the last thing they did with him? Does anybody remember? Say it out loud. Or don't. So the last time we see the disciples, they are fleeing, right? So Jesus has served them the Last Supper. They've prayed. He's arrested, and whoom, they're gone. Talk about awkward. Uh, yeah, so we're going to go and meet Jesus, the guy that we ran away from and were scared to be around at the end. We left him alone. I'm sure part of this hesitancy and division in them was we, 
We ran. This is going to be an awkward encounter. You know what those are like, right? Those awkward encounters after some friction has happened and then it's the first time you see the person again and you're like, oh, um, hey. And so some of this hesitancy might be from that. But whatever it is, it's not a doubt with, with Jesus being Jesus. It's not a doubt with the fact that he was their rabbi and they were following him. There was a hesitancy in them. And I would say that that's really where most of us live in relationship with God, isn't it? It's easy to look at this word and go, oh, I don't doubt Jesus at all. But how do we live? We live with a hesitancy. We live with this duality, this split, this two parts. We want to serve him, but we don't always submit to him. We hold something back. We want to give him some, but we want to hold something back. And so I would say that this is really a humanization of the disciples, and it shows us that we are just like them. But even in this hesitancy, Jesus has a message for them. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, period, the end of Matthew's writing. He leaves with this. And in literature of their day, what he was doing was saying, this is the, this is the point. This is, this is it. This is, what I'm, this is the mic drop. This is what I want you to remember and go out on. Matthew doesn't come back and add anything to the end. He leaves the words of Jesus floating out there as a charge. And so let's look at what this means. So let's go back to verse 18. There's a recurrence here of the word all. It actually happens four times. All authority, all nations, all that I have taught you, and all the years to the end of the age. Jesus' message here is now the gospel has been unchained. It is for all. At one point in my ministry, and, and this is the point Jesus is making, I told you just to go to the people of Israel. Now I'm saying all. And he starts with this idea of all authority in heaven and on earth. So let's go back to the mountain scene on the temptation. What was the temptation on the mountain? What did Satan offer him? All of these kingdoms. But Jesus didn't buy into that, and he finished the race, and he, and he followed what the Father wanted him to do. And at the conclusion, what does he get? All of the power, but not only earthly power, but in heaven and on earth. Because Jesus was willing to wait and to follow through with what the Father had for him, he didn't bypass it and sell himself short. And again, how oftentimes do we take one thing that God wants us or wants for us and we, and we grab that and we hold on to it and we miss that there's even more if we're just willing to hold on and continue to follow him? 
There is more to be done. And so Jesus waits, and because he waits and he goes through the cross and the resurrection, he now has authority on heaven and um, on, on earth. It's all-encompassing. It's universal authority. And because, Jesus is saying to his disciples, because I now have all authority, go therefore and make disciples. Now, the verbiage in the original language, and I've talked about this from this passage before, is very unique. There's only one imperative. Judith Ann, what's an imperative? It's a command. It's a directive. And for those of you who don't know, I ask that because she's the AP English teacher. It's a directive. It's a command. There's only one. Does anybody know what that command is in this passage? Go, we would think, but it's not. And I'm sorry I set you up to be wrong, but I didn't mean that to embarrass you. It's what I thought until I, until I read it in the original language. The imperative is, isn't go. The imperative is make disciples. The word go isn't an imperative. It's actually a word that means going. So it's odd in English to get the right translation, but it would be something like this. It's, it's an, infer, an infinitive, by the way. So it's as you are going, or to those of you who are going. Does that make sense? So as you are going, or the ones of you that are going. Now, what does that even mean? This is where we struggle. What's the meaning behind that? So if it's not an imperative to go, what's it mean when he says, those of you who are going? I think it means something similar to the autonomative system, whatever that is. Autom yes, system in our body. As you are going, it's who you are. As you are going, as you are living, as you are being you, make disciples. As you are living your life, make disciples. The spiritual reaction to what God is doing in you is that as you go, you naturally are impacting other lives. So one way that you might read this passage is, as you are going, with the authority of Christ at work in you, baptize. As you are going, with the power of Christ at work in you, teach. As you are going, with the power of Christ at work in you, as you baptize and teach, Make disciples. So let's break that down a little bit further to gain understanding. I'm not saying, and this passage isn't saying, that everywhere you go, you need to fill up the bed of your trunk, uh, truck with a lined pool with water in it so that you can baptize people everywhere you go. It's not what that's saying. So what does he mean? 
So if the autonomative system spiritually for us is to, is to go as we're going, these things happen, it means that they naturally occur. So baptism in the, in the understanding of the first century church and, and as Jesus was teaching it was an, an invitation to a relationship with God and an invitation to a relationship with his people. Does that make sense? So baptism was an introduction it was a connection to, it was a relationship with God, and it was a relationship with his people. To be baptized was to be in relationship with God and in relationship with his people. You got that. I've said it three times now. So let's go back and read this as I think it would be more understandable in English. As you are naturally going about your life, with the power of Christ at work in you. Live in such a way that people come into relationship with Christ and with other believers. As you live your life, as you go about your everyday work, whatever it is, ask yourself this. Do I live in such a way that people are coming into relationship with God and they're coming in relationship with his people? As I'm driving Airport Boulevard, am I driving an Airport Boulevard in such a way? <laughs> yeah. As I am going to the store, am I going to the store in such a way that people see God and experience God and experience Christ and are experiencing his people? I'm going to work. As I live out my life, do I live my life? Am I going in such a way that people come to faith and understanding of Christ and are in relationship with his people? Through me, do people know God and know his people. You got that. That's the baptism part. Then the second part is, and teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. So the teaching to obey, understand that teaching in Jesus' day wasn't like what I'm doing now. This was not how it worked. Teaching, as Dr. Foley could tell you, was experiencing in relationship, right? It was being in community. Teaching was a back and forth. It was what you were doing, Catherine, by the way, with Marshall last night. Teaching is that moment when you're sharing the Bible story. He asks a question, and you're wrestling with it, and you're praying, and I don't know the answer to that, but let's pray about it, and then let's talk about it. It was a back and forth. It's why Jesus taught with stories and with questions. Most of what the disciples learned was not from his, it wasn't from Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Those didn't exist yet. It was from their relationship. It was from being with him. He lived in such a way that his disciples learned what it looked like. The main mode of teaching in Jesus' day was one-on-one -on -one relationship, which is discipleship. So with that in mind, let's go back to this passage. As you are living your life, 
You live your, live your life in such a way that people learn from your example what it means to follow him. So when you drive Airport Boulevard, drive Airport Boulevard in a way that people see what it looks like for Christ to drive Airport Boulevard. Golly, Lord, why am I saying that? Now I'm going to have to do it. As you go to work, go to work and work in such a way that people see the truth of Christ at work in you. Live your life in such a way that they catch Christ from you. That's what this idea of teaching really is here. So when he says, teach them all that I have taught you to, to, to obey all that I've taught you, he's saying, teach them to live the same way that I've taught you to live. And the way that happens is by example. So as we go, do we go in such a way? Do we live our lives in such a way? Do we work in such a way? Do we interact in such a way? Do we fellowship in such a way? Do we live in our neighborhood in such a way that people come into contact with God and get connected with God and connected with his people? And do they, from our lifestyle, learn what it looks like to be in relationship with Christ? Do they, do they learn from how we live? Can they see from our life what it means to follow Christ? So the key to understanding this passage is understanding this idea of as you were going. It becomes such a part of who you are, it happens naturally. I think that one of the biggest problems we have with sharing faith is that we think we have to have all the right theology and the right answers. But according to this passage, we just have to have the right life. Empowered by Christ. And it will naturally spill out. It's autonomic. As you are going. So I want to give you a moment to just think about that for a second. Maybe you think back through this past week. Your life this past week as went as you were going through your days. Did people experience God through you? Did they experience his people through you? Did they see what a resurrection life looks like? Did they see Christ's life in you? Can I be honest with you? There were times this week people saw selfishness from me. There were times this week people saw anger from me. There were times this week people saw apathy. I don't really care about you. I'm, if I'm honest, there are times this week people saw rudeness. There are times this week people saw 
all sorts of things, but they didn't necessarily see Christ as I was going. Maybe that was your experience this past week too. That's where this division of the disciples come in, right? They were divided. They didn't know, well, I want to give it up my all, but something I'm holding back, I'm, a, I'm conflicted. There's, there's, this, there's a struggle, and it is a struggle. But as we pursue Christ, and as we become closer with him, it becomes autonomic. And I have found, that making disciples as I go is a byproduct of my personal relationship with Christ. And so my challenge for you this week is to draw closer to him, and as you draw closer to him, let him live more and more through you so that everywhere you go, through your words, through your kindness, through your actions, people are drawn to God and his people. And they see what it looks like to live a life for him through you. I spent a lot of hours after school sitting in detention halls. A lot of hours. Because I couldn't help myself. It was who I was. Judith Ann's like, I'm not buying that. I'm a teacher. I don't agree with that. I know it's an excuse. And it's an easy way to let myself off the hook. But here's the thing. It really was who I was. And it was hard for me to overcome that. May it be the same for you spiritually. It comes to the point in your life where it becomes automatic. Wherever you go, people see and experience Christ. We hope you found this week's message meaningful and impactful. And as always, don't just hear it, but put it into practice. Until next time, have a good one.